did I start? <laughs> it's hi, totally... this is hi. This is Ron Gilbert. Uh, hi, uh, okay, okay, okay. Hello, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the very special Dolores edition of the Thumbleweed Park podcast. And joining me today is David Fox. Hey there. And unfortunately, we recorded this podcast yesterday with Derek and uh, Rob joining us, but. Something went wrong, and I lost almost all of the recordings. So things were corrupted, and things were weird. So anyway, so we had to start over. So this is the second version, and David and I will try to sound super spontaneous, like this is the first time we answered any of these questions. It's kind of like it's kind of like playing the Dolores game over again. Oh yeah, so we're now we're in the second second so, round <laughs> so we we have to do what five more of these podcasts <laughs> <laughs> and then uh derek might be joining us later because uh he's got some questions um there were some questions for him about uh windows and uh direct access and stuff like that that he's probably best to answer so he will be joining us a little bit later so david shall we launch into it yeah well i so i remember what we did yesterday Everyone knows who you are. Most people probably know who I am, but I'll just mention that my role on Dolores was as a coder, really, a scripter. Designer. Designer. Yeah, we, we brainstormed on the game design a lot, and then um, I helped wire it up and do some of the text and dialogue, and yeah, that's it. All right, should we launch into these questions? Yes. All right, first one is a doozy. I figure we start out strong. How's the weather? <laughs> well, the weather here in, in the Bay Area is very windy and cool, and we're going to get some rain any minute. Different than yesterday, where it was a lot nicer. So that's too bad. I could have been doing this podcast with really nice weather instead of gray and windy. Yeah, it's, it's nice here in Seattle. It was, it was gray and overcast yesterday, so I think we just swapped we weather. We swapped weather, okay. Yeah. All right, so now that we're over the tough question, we'll move on to the easy ones. Uh, Sean wants to know, what did you think was the toughest puzzle? And I think he thinks the toughest one was the demolition one. I think the demolition is a tough puzzle because it's really based on an Easter egg in Thibbleweed Park. And so I think for people who didn't figure out the Easter egg in Thibbleweed Park, it feels like it could be a tough puzzle. Yeah. Interestingly, some of the ones that I saw a lot of comments on on Twitter were things we thought were really easy, but that's from our American-centric point of view, like the the one with Jefferson. Oh, we should we should state that um, we are going to be saying things that will spoil the game if you haven't played it yet. So you should really listen to this podcast after you've played through Dolores. I, I could put like spoiler music. <laughs> if if you haven't played Dolores, we recommend that you play it first. So then the second part of this question was, um, are we going to get a Thimbleweed Park game centered around Ransom? And that's an interesting story because David and I have actually talked about that, about doing a Ransom, you know, a mini game. Because I think in some ways he and Dolores are the two most interesting characters in mm -hmm. Thimbleweed Park. And we talked about doing one and of course ransom shows up at the end of the dolores game and we could just kind of segue into a ransom game from there so some we're thinking about 
haven't made any decisions, but uh, we might do it. It's definitely, I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of expensive. I think we spent probably just over $10,000 building the Dolores game. And, you know, it was released for free. So, you know, doing doing these, even with David and I, you know, working for nothing, which we're both doing, um, is still a little bit expensive to kind of do these. So, you know, it's not something we can just kind of launch into on a whim, unfortunately. But we are talking about it. Yep. And the next question is from Zach Phoenix McCracken. I have a hint that that's not his real name. I could be wrong, <laughs> but... I think I've heard McCracken somewhere. <laughs> um, okay, so he says interface okay, puzzles okay, and one of the best parts of the game is the ending credits. So yeah, the ending credits were um, were interesting because they were very kind of spontaneously developed, and it was it was around nine o'clock at night. And I was doing the credits for the game, and I figured they'd just be nice short little credits because, you know, not a lot of people worked on the game. And um, I brought in the music that Steve Kirk had done for the ending, and I didn't really look at how long it was. I think my mind kind of said it was like a minute or so, but um, that's a six and a half minute piece of music. And so I started doing the credits and then I tested them and the music didn't end. And I thought, okay, well, I need to add some more credits. So I'd add some more credits and then I test them again and the music still didn't end. So it it became this thing where I was just trying to think of stuff to say. And it was also, you know, by that time it was 10 30 or 11 at night and I was probably a little, you know, punch drunk sleepy at that moment. And that's kind of how we got the credits. They're all yours. They're yes. All, yes. Yes. 100% Ron Gilbert humor. Well, um, except Rob had the suggestion of putting in the flushing toilet. <laughs> so the flushing toilet noise that happens um, when I say I'll be right back, um, that was Rob's idea. Oh, did so. you hear that? Um, the, because everything shut down here um, for the first time ever, they started doing live streaming of the Supreme Court justices hearing cases. And each one in them at their, oh. at their own home. Yeah, I read that. And apparently, one of them um, didn't know about the mute button or forgot about it. And so you hear him like <laughs> clinking with his dishes, you know, like he's eating food. And then about forty-one minutes later, you hear a toilet flush. <laughs> it's just wow. you know these are like supposed to be the the most you know serious and. Um, people judges of the of the land and but it and, was it was it a conservative justice or a liberal justice well, i think i think i heard that they thought it might have been buyer stephen buyer oh um and He's liberal right He's a liberal i think justice, so yeah. yeah uh and apparently there was an article in one of the papers maybe it was a political where they did this whole analysis of who it must be based on who had their who was muted at different times and and all this stuff so yeah it's toilet gate <laughs> All right, so Chris wants to know, why was the decision made to release the game for free? Was it always intended to be free, or was that a late decision? Yeah, I think it was always intended to be free. You know, the the way the game started out, and I think we'll get that to in a future question. The way the game started out, you know, I was just you know, doing some prototyping um, for the new engine that I was developing, and, you know, I had all this Thimbleweed Park art sitting around, so it was a really easy thing to start to build that stuff up and you know when i started to become a fun little game and then david 
came on came on board and we decided that we'd actually release it it just it felt natural just do it for free you know it was a it was a small game and everybody's locked in their homes and it was just kind of a you know a thank you to the fans uh out there for thimbleweed park and we just you know figured we just release for free there was never any talk about charging money for it right and and because it was free and felt we had a lot more permission that we gave ourselves to experiment without worrying about, you know, bad reviews or people not buying it or something. Um, we, it just kind of made it a little more fun actually than for me to do it than it would have been if we, if there was the pressure of, of people paying for it and, and whether or not they'd feel like they got their money's worth for it. Yeah. Is it, is it long enough? Is it complicated enough? Is it easy yeah. enough? I mean, all those questions kind of, you know, go away a little bit when you're doing it for free. Yeah. Of course, you know, if this were a paid game, we I think we would have put a lot more time into polishing into uh, the whole thing. Well, we certainly would have spent a lot more time on compatibility testing, right. you know, because it was a free game and, you know, we knew we had a very short development schedule. We didn't really have a lot of time to do compatibility testing and, you know, that did cause us some issues with, you know, Windows 10 and, you know, Windows 7 and 8 and some DirectX 12 issues. I mean, all those things would have been ironed out, you know, had we been doing a real game. All right, next question is from Jim Maxwell. When Dolores worked for Mucus Flim, did she ever meet Mr. Mucus himself? I think she saw him at the, at the cafeteria. Yeah. Yeah. But they probably didn't talk. No. Well, he always, because he's Mr. Mucus, he was always wearing a, like a face mask or something <laughs> to keep himself from dripping on his food. Yeah. You, you met Lucas, right? I'm sure you did. You must yeah. have. Yeah. There, back, back, um, well, there, a couple, there were a couple of times before I actually met him, when I first started working there, um, I remember walking back from lunch with a bunch of us and saw some guy way you know like two blocks away coming from the building and said oh that looks like kind of like a george lucas and um but he was too small and he waved at us <laughs> it was too small oh he was far away but I, he, he, I i don't think i had seen him close up in person you know things that are far away look small david that's, that's true Did you we, know we that? actually have that in the game don't we <laughs> <laughs> um and he waved at us and he said, oh, this guy who looks like George Lucas just waved at us. And then we all realized, like, oh, it's really George. And we, you know, we were new employees, so it was kind of like a big deal. But <laughs> he was the, just grieving you for the company. Yeah. But he actually did um, play test my very first game, um, and that was a Rescue on Fractalus. He was in my office for about 20 minutes giving me suggestions and um, asking me why I didn't have a fire button on, the, on a shooting game. <laughs> genius like yeah so oh, good idea um and um, that's why he's a billionaire yeah not that's, that's true <laughs> but after that after that you know, we did meet him again or talked to him during the run-up to indiana jones and last crusade with him and steven spielberg to talk about what we could do yeah i remember and, that and other than that not a lot um maybe like a nod or a wave yeah i remember he came by the office I think I'd been working at the company for, you know, only maybe six months or so. And he came out of the office and looked at uh, Cronus Rift that I was working on. Mm. 
And I mean, he didn't really make much of an impression at the time. He was very quiet. Mm-hmm. He said great a lot when he was looking at stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I met him later when he came by for the Indiana Jones stuff with Spielberg. And I did notice that he is a lot more animated when Spielberg is around. Mm. You know, I think when it was just him, I think he was very quiet. But when Spielberg was around, he was just a lot more talkative and and, uh, and animated. But he never came by and saw Monkey Island. You know, I never showed him Monkey Island. Yeah, he well, he stopped doing it after the first couple of games. Uh, um, There was... I mean, he lives in my town, and so every once in a while, like, I'll be someplace and I'll look around and and look at some table and have, like, a, a feeling like there's something familiar over there, and then he kind of, like, comes into focus, and he's like, it's, oh, George Lucas sitting at that table, and I, I've kind of decided that he has this kind of force field around him, like, you do not see me, kind of Yoda trick, and I was actually in line with yeah, right behind him, right next to him at, at the Safeway supermarket once for like three or four minutes before I noticed it. You know, I was looking right at him and before I kind of realized, oh, George Lucas. Um, and that, so that's happened a few times. It's like he has this invisibility field. Yeah, I was in a movie theater and he was there going and seeing a movie. He was just standing in line, you know, getting popcorn. Yeah. And I mean, nobody seemed to notice him. I mean, yeah. no one paid attention to him at all, yeah. you know. It's, it's the Jedi mind trick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Derek will be joining us now. Derek uh, was the kind of engine back-end graphics programmer on the game. And there are a couple of questions that people had about uh, those topics. And so I thought Derek would be great to answer them. So let's get started. So the first one comes from David. And it says, are you still using OpenGL and Apple devices for the new engine? Or did you move to Metal? And how did you find that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we are using Metal on, I think, anything later than macOS Sierra. We do a fallback to OpenGL for earlier operating systems where the Metal support is a little more limited or non-existent. Moving to it was actually really nice. I think I spent three weeks doing the port kind of in my spare time and really haven't encountered that many problems with it. There's a lot of architectural change, or architectural things that are similar for like Vulkan and DirectX 12, et cetera, right? Yeah, and the big thing is that the sort of the three new graphics APIs, Metal, DirectX 12, and Vulkan are all very, very similar. And they, they stem from, a I think it was an AMD project called Mantle that never actually went anywhere, but sort of spawned all the modern APIs. And the big thing is they are built with kind of modern computers and consoles and even cell phones in mind, in that we're getting a lot more computer cores, applications are tending to use a lot more threads, and the new APIs are explicitly asynchronous, and they're built for that kind of environment. I think, I think a lot of attention gets put on the idea that these are simply performance improvements, but that's kind of, it's, it's true, but it's kind of the lesser interesting aspect of them. The real thing is that trying to do any kind of threaded work on OpenGL and really even DirectX 11 and under 
it was starting to get really, really hard. And it's a lot easier with the new APIs. Yeah, I noticed a lot of that in the interface code, you know, from the upper part of the engine down to your stuff, that there's now all this asynchronous um, stuff going on between the two. Yeah, I, I know a lot of companies have been slow to adopt DirectX 12. For the stuff I've been doing, I was already trying to do everything on background threads anyway, and that worked for a long time in OpenGL. It was a little bit clunky, but it started to get harder and harder, and then it just kind of stopped working entirely. I think one of the things we, you know, we were trying to do with this was future-proof it in a way. And I think you had mentioned uh, on the podcast yesterday that um, it kind of got destroyed was that you know, we're really when you when you're building a game, you're really building the tech for what it's going to be when the game releases, not the tech for the day that you're actually making the game. Yeah, that's exactly true. And you and I have had these conversations about is specific specifically about DirectX 11, like several times. And it always goes something like, "Well, should we support DirectX 11? There are people still using it and using Windows 7." Well, probably, but let's look at it when we're closer to actually shipping a game and then see what the landscape looks like. Because it, um, unlike going from, say, DirectX 11 to 10 or 9, it's not just a simple translation because there are architectural differences. Implementing something like DirectX 11 now, it would be like implementing OpenGL, which in a threaded environment is actually fairly tricky. And yeah, you're trying to target where you're going to ship your game code on and that's not always feasible looking backwards yeah i think this one bit us a little because it was such a fast dev cycle you know we were when we first started doing the work on the engine it was for a game that might come out in two years but this thing kind of rolled around in six weeks and i think it caught us a little off guard yeah, I mean, I came on to the project in, I think, the very end of March or, or very early April. And it was really just to add in a couple of small features and to do whatever tech support was needed. All right, next question is from Mantis Cedarville. He says, why is Windows 10 required? I hate that operating system and I will not install it with an explanation point. I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> I use a Mac. <laughs> Um, it's, it's really unfortunate because, well, I think there are some, some like driver architecture differences. I think the fundamental reason Microsoft doesn't support DirectX 12 fully on Windows 7 is simply because they want people to upgrade. They, and they initially refused to support it on anything other than Windows 10. And then they finally relinquished a little bit and said, okay, well, WoW is going to be able to use DirectX 12. And then they open it up for a few other games, but I, but the, the support still isn't isn't full. Yeah, I don't think Dolores has the cachet that World of Warcraft does. So it's 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 too bad, really. I mean, my last PC runs Windows two thousand, so I can't I can't really talk. <laughs> wow, I guess I ran Vista for a long time. Yeah, you see, I kind of stopped on the Windows upgrade path. I mean, I used Windows at work. But at home, I just didn't bother with it. And then I still didn't bother with it. And then I needed to do some DirectX developments. Like, okay, well, what's new? Okay, well, I'll get a laptop and it has Windows 10 on it. 
cool. Yeah, I mean, like like you, I'm a Mac person, so you know, I my primary machine is is a Mac, and the only reason I had a Windows machine was to do Windows builds for Thimbleweed Park. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is unfortunate, um, but it's it's somewhat out of our hands. And now that now that uh, Windows Seven is like fully out of service life, it's less and less likely to be able to support it properly. Because even finding a computer to, to build on and test on is is quite difficult at this point. All right, next question comes from Gregor, and he wants to know: Will you get the engine running on Linux? It's almost certainly. <laughs> it's, it's a very different question than the Windows 7 thing. The Windows 7 thing is about supporting older operating systems, but Linux is not an old operating system, or at least you know, current versions of it are certainly not old. So supporting that I think is pretty much a no-brainer. It's simply a matter of taking the time to make sure it works and make sure it works well. Yeah, I think this is another place that our incredibly short development time frame kind of caught us off guard. Definitely. Because you know, we were, you know, building this, you know, engine for something that, you know, may release several years from now. And of course, you know, Linux would be a part of that. And then we got caught in the short time frame and, you know, Linux just kind of wasn't in, in the immediate roadmap. So it wasn't, it wasn't possible in the few weeks we had to do this. <laughs> Um, and there's a big distinction of will the engine support Linux versus will Dolores support Linux? Yes, yes. So yeah, I mean the, the engine no doubt will definitely support Linux, but you know whether that gets backported to Dolores is kind of an open question. Yeah. So Manuel asks, would it be possible to add all the verbs in when right-clicking? Currently, it only shows the possible verbs and not the wrong. Well, I mean, technically that's possible, but the problem is, I think, I think Dolores has probably close to thirty verbs. Is that right, David? Yeah, it's about right. Yeah, so she, I mean, there's there's about thirty verbs in the game, so you know, it's really not kind of possible to dump all thirty of them, you know, onto the screen uh, with with that stuff. I think that's kind of not really what you want to do anyway. Yeah, I think you want to kind of narrow down the verb set and and this you know this interface was a little bit experimental for me and it was you know trying to look at you know the 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 verbs like thimbleweed park had or monkey island had and trying to find something that was in between that and the you know kind of coin single use or poke verb interface which is very common today which i really really do not like and so this was kind of looking at, you know, is there a nice middle ground between those two things? And and I don't think, you know, what what we what we did for Dolores though is is the end all. I think there's a lot of, you know, refinement that we'll probably make on that interface, but I think it is kind of pointing in the right direction. Uh, from a I think from a game point of view, I mean some people have said that they like having all the verbs because then you could try all these different verbs on every object and find hidden funny things or hidden surprises. And I think my feeling was that um, that is tedious. Like you're, you basically, most objects maybe only have one or two responses and the rest were, you can't do that or you can't do that with this or that doesn't work. And that's just like getting slapped in the face multiple times that the thing you just tried isn't there or the programmers were too lazy to put it in or 
or what. And I, I really liked working with this in that it let me it let me just code what I wanted to code. And if we had a great idea, we could add it, but we didn't have to fill in with a, a bunch of unnecessary stuff just, you know, to fill up the verbs. Right. Or or if you had an idea you didn't have to figure out, you know, well, how can I push this or how can I, you know, pull it or turn it on or, you know, just using the limited set of verbs. And the other you know, impetus I really had for this interface was that it was a lot more expressive. You know, it's not just push and pull and turn on and, you know, turn off and that limited set of things, but things could be very, very expressive, right? So if you're using a screwdriver on something, it's not just use screwdriver with, but you can actually say that you're, you know, um, you know, undoing something, you're loosening something, you're tightening something. And and to me, that's that kind of takes this ambiguity um, for the player that when they click on something, they know exactly what this thing is trying to do. And I think that also, and you don't see this a lot in Dolores because we really didn't, you know, have the space to really explore it. But I think, I think that leads to a very different kind of puzzle, and that's what really excites me about this interface is that it's, it's not a, a guess the verb puzzle anymore. Right. And it be it becomes, hopefully, it becomes, the puzzles become a lot more conceptual. You know that you're trying to understand what you could do at a much higher level with the objects rather than just randomly, you know, poking things and poking this and poking that and, and figuring out uh, what can work. And I don't think Dolores really explored that well, but it's something I, I definitely want to explore um, with future games in this UI. Yeah. Um, during during the final phases while we were in test, we we since we knew we could add a bunch more stuff, we asked um, both Robert and Katrina if they could come up with any additional things that you could that they think they wanted to try to do with with these objects and you know there are a few things that came up as a result that were really funny that you know we could just reuse old animation that they had that we had from before and I just triggered any new in a funny way and so there's a there was a richness there that um you know we could just pop it in with with a verb that you might never have had before yeah, and, and adding a new verb to the game is it's like three lines of code, you know. So if you're thinking that you want to have a new verb because this thing can be used in a you know a different or obscure way, you know, it's three lines of code and you suddenly have a new verb in the game. So uh, you know, it's really easy to add them. And as as I was doing, you know, the the programming for the UI, that was a big that was a big impetus of all this was that it was really easy to add verbs. Also, as I say, the ability to turn off a verb. Um, so, like, rather than having to have code that you say you're tra- turning on the light switch when it's already on, say, you know, it's already on. Um, you don't. We that just doesn't happen because you don't get that option as a verb when. Yeah, you you cannot turn on a light switch if the light is already on. It's right. just not possible. Right. So the next question comes from Atej. So getting dumped out of the game after each sub goal and then back with effectively progress saved before is an interesting concept. The way you've executed it actually feels fresh and intriguing rather than tedious. I wonder, was this concept what you wanted on the outright or was it a side effect of keeping the progress simpler? Yeah, I think this grew, grew up very organically, you know, because again, the game started out as me just prototyping some stuff 
and I wasn't really ready to implement a save game. You know, the save game in Thimbleweed Park is very complicated, you know, because it kind of does a pristine save of the game, and I really did not have time to do that. But as the photographs kind of grew, and there were more than five of them, we really realized that we didn't want to have people having to take 30 photographs and not have a save game. So it kind of felt like doing five at a time. That was a nice little amount of progress that if you did quit in the middle, it wasn't that hard to kind of make up for that progress. So that's kind of really where that, you know, where that, that concept came from, you know, of, 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 of just having these short little um, pieces. But I mean, the other, the other thing is kind of a dirty little secret about all this is before we shipped, I had a bug in my garbage collection for the dinky language. And so it was easier for me just to turn off garbage collection than to go through the rigmarole of actually fixing it. And so dumping you out of the game after those photographs <laughs> kind of fix a problem because, well, I'm just going to quit the game and then all the memory is clear and then you start up and you're fresh again. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of the reason that you're actually dumped out of the game as opposed to it just looping back again with Natalie is just because of my garbage collection bug. And I think it all it fits a little a little bit with the theme, you know, what's going on at Thimbleweed Park, you know, the kind of meta concepts of being dumped out and stuff. So I think I think it was just it was a nice thing that happened. All right, Mike wants to know Dolores's inventory was always present at the bottom of the screen and crept growing every time you took a photo. Do you think it's better to show the inventory instead of hiding it away? Well, you can hide the inventory. If you press the I button, it'll show and hide the inventory. Um, originally, uh, there was supposed to be like a little, you know, the backpack Dolores has um, was going to be uh, down in the lower left. And you click on that to expand the inventory, but I just ran out of time, so that didn't get implemented. But yeah, I think you do have to keep the inventory count down. You know, something like Thimbleweed Park or Monkey Island, I think there were way too many inventory items. And so I think like smart adventure game designs, you're keeping the inventory to a manageable level. And and just having the technical constraint of it all kind of being on the screen really means you have to think about it all the time and not let it grow. Do you think if we ended up doing something bigger, would you have scrolling like with arrows like you did before? Or would you just try to keep it keep it lower? I would try to keep it lower. You know, I think you can probably get two rows of inventory on the screen without it um, being obnoxious. And I would really just try to keep the inventory down to to two rows. I think we try. I think during testing, we got to the point where you, we had unlimited photos, like a debug mode where you could take as many pictures as you want. Ended up with like three or four lines of photos, and it started. You know, at that point, it starts blocking too much of the view. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I think just good adventure game design. I think you want to keep the inventory small. Yeah. Um. Hold on one sec. I want to. I'm hearing noise coming in from downstairs, and I want to ask Andy to turn something down. Okay. Right back. I'll I'll edit that out. Yeah, sure. Or maybe not. Maybe <laughs> I won't actually. <laughs> 
So the next question is from Dittus, and he wants to know who is Jay Bain? I'm going to let David answer this question. Yeah, well, this, this was inspired by someone who used to work at the ranch and was kind of in, in charge of a whole bunch of stuff. And Whose name rhymes with Jay Bain. Jay Bain. There's a place in the game where Dolores wants to take the Thimblecon poster and hang it up in her office. And she says, but only if Jay Bain lets her do it. And back at the ranch, we had all sorts of restrictions on how we could decorate our offices. And the one I remember the most is that for, the, for those of us who had offices with like two or three windows and these really nice wooden white shades, we had to make sure that the shades were all at the same level for all the windows. So if you looked at the room from the outside, you wouldn't see one shade all the way up and one shade halfway and one shade like closed. They all had to be at the same exact level for appearance, for aesthetics. And we just thought that was kind of silly. Yeah, this is the downside to working at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, it's terrible. There. I mean, this is, this is the, the discussion during lunch. It was like... <laughs> That I think the other one was like whether or not you use mayonnaise and artichokes. Remember that one too. <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, that someone one. was complaining that there was no mayonnaise to dip their artichokes in because someone Jay Bain was on a diet. Oh, I remember that. Yes, <laughs> I, I I remember that the food at the cafeteria at the ranch would change dramatically depending on who was on a diet or not. <laughs> so next question comes from Mark Zuckerberg, and I can only assume this is the actual Mark Zuckerberg. As this is a technical preview of your upcoming engine, what type of metrics are you getting from people? Have you learned anything other than begging for a right-click to stick dial skip dialogue will never die? Are you going to change anything in the UI of the engine that's emerged from the game? You know, the goal of this game was not to collect information like this. I mean, there are no analytics whatsoever uh, in the game, so we're not collecting anything like that. It is, you know, always interesting when you release a game to kind of hear what people are thinking of it and how they're using it and you know for me watching people you know do do twitch streams playing the game is incredibly useful because i can just watch how people are going about solving puzzles and how they're using the ui and this type of stuff is great information and because this game was built in like six weeks you know we didn't have the time to do proper play testing so uh you know getting getting that kind of information from people is very useful i do wish we had more time to do play the kind of play testing where you're watching someone play through that's 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 kind of time consuming but it's invaluable because there's all sorts of assumptions that we make um that even with a few people testing it you really don't get all the answers you need yeah, one thing I noticed from watching people on Twitch streams, like we were watching, you know, we were watching Nina uh, play, and I've seen this with other people, is they really don't even use left click anymore. It's like everything is right click. They just right click on the object and they look at the verbs, and you know, then they choose their verbs, and that's kind of not the way I designed the interface to work. And it's really kind of pointed out to me that there probably is an issue that needs to be resolved in some way because you know, a lot of people want to use the interface you know wrong right but i don't want to pull a steve jobs and just say well you're doing it wrong right it's i think that's an opportunity to really kind of look at the interface and say all right well something is a little bit off here 
So, you know, we need to fix that. All right, next question comes from Mitchner. Is Dinky a not-so-subtle reference to the Dinky Island in uh, Monkey Island? Uh, no, it's actually not. Uh, originally, the the language was called Grumpy Script, and I really hated that name because it just wasn't fun and it wasn't interesting. And then, uh, you know, one morning I was I was just in bed and I was just thinking about this, and I just started so I just started thinking up you know kind of strange and funny names, and then Dinky came up, but that was really I liked I liked that name a lot, but that was more that it was Dinky, it was small. And so that's really why that appealed to me. And it was only, you know, much later that I kind of realized the reference between Dinky Island and Monkey Island and uh, the name of the language. Yeah, I assume that Dinky Island was very small also. Matt Williams wants to know, can you please release this on consoles? We need more Thimbleweed Park in these dark times. Yeah, we would love to release it on consoles, but unfortunately that's uh, not easy for a lot of reasons. One is that the console manufacturers get to decide what goes on their platforms. You know, unlike Steam, where you can just kind of release a game, uh, you know, you need to get Nintendo's approval. And that's a lot more than just sending off an email, you know, because a lot of these consoles, they want to know what the game is, and you have to put together pitch proposals for the thing and, and all of that. And it's just, it's a lot harder to get on consoles. And also consoles... Um, they have really stringent requirements, so you spend a lot of time, you know, going through QA and with Nintendo, you have to go through lot checks, which can, you know, take a good one to two months, and so it's just it's a lot harder to get stuff on consoles. I mean, certainly, you know, if we were to do a full-size game, it would of course, you know, be on the Switch and other consoles. Do you want to say like about what it costs to adapt a game for a console? Oh, you know, it it really depends. You know, I think. PlayStation is probably the most expensive uh, in terms of being able to get something on on the PlayStation. I think I think we paid around fifty or sixty thousand dollars to get Thimbleweed Park onto the PlayStation. Xbox is a lot cheaper because Xbox is really just running Windows, right? So you have you have a whole lot of stuff that you don't have to recreate from scratch. Although they you know they have a lot of requirements with their um, achievements and cloud saves and so you you know you have to go through all their weird systems for doing all these things so it kind of takes a while i mean steam is nice because steam is just simple and it's it's really pretty easy to put something up there what about like ratings you have to get them yeah ratings are another point in order to get stuff on consoles you have to go through the you know esrb or the um iarc or any of those rating systems and you know, I think that costs like $6,000 just to get your game rated. Mm. And they will not take a game that's not rated, where Steam doesn't really care. You know, Steam and the Epic Store, um, you know, GOG and these other places, they don't they don't require the stuff as rated. So it's a lot easier to get it on there. All right, uh, Rich50 wants to know, was Ron really an extra in Ewoks, The Battle of Endor? Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually was an extra in Ewoks, The Battle of Endor. I'm waiting for that to come on to Netflix so I can watch <laughs> it, but I don't know that it's going to. Did, can you, did you actually, when you saw it, could you find yourself? No, because I, I played, there were these, I think they were called Marauders. There were these these creatures that ran ran you know around trying to kill ewoks and i was a marauder and there were maybe 30 of us that were there that day to shoot it and then 
when ILM did the special effects, it was kind of funny because you know, I remember this one scene where we had to run down this hill uh, chasing these Ewoks, and they had to do us do it twice. Once we ran down the left side of the hill, and then the second time we did it, we ran down the right side of the hill. And in in the final movie, they composited those together, so it just looked like it was twice as many. Hmm. Um, twice as many marauders. Plus, I mean, I was wearing a rubber mask, so I don't think you could spot me. Just by the way you run. Yeah, I should have done like a funny run. <laughs> you should have you know, a, a done... little hop or something. I missed that. I I totally didn't. Either I didn't hear the the casting call for that, or I had family day or something. I don't remember what it was. It's probably in a weekend or something. Well, Noah was there. Yeah. I remember Noah, so he certainly he heard about it. Yeah, the the only thing I got to do was in when they were doing uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. I there was a casting call for people to scream, and I went to, into Ben Burt's chambers <laughs> and had headphones on, and he just described the kinds of screams he wanted me to do, and it was very cathartic. I mean, actually, it was embarrassing. You know, the lights were down low and make you feel not so self conscious. But he said, "Okay, now scream like you just had." someone stab you in the stomach <laughs> like now, like you know what that feels like uh, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> or now scream like you're falling off of a bridge or something and, and i actually think i recognize my voice and as a scream as the people are being knocked off this kind of rope bridge in the in the game in the movie i have to watch it again yeah. i watched all the indiana jones games about uh, not games movies so i watched all the indiana jones movies um a couple of months ago yeah. and i think the temple of doom is by far the worst movie yeah i think it's i mean it's worse than the crystal skull really? or oh, whatever that's, yeah it's really bad if you see them all back to back like that you kind of realize that i mean the crystal skull one wasn't that bad actually you know mm. compared to temple of doom which is horrible. Maybe because you're expecting something at the level of Last Crusade. I actually watched Last Crusade like a year ago and um, was surprised at some of the inappropriate stuff that was happening in it, the rapey stuff, and and I, I was a little embarrassed. I was just like, whoa, I don't think they could make this now. Yeah, things change quickly. Yeah. Okay, next question comes from Howard. Does the dinky scripting language differ from Squirrel, and how did David find to use it? Yeah, well, dinky is heavily influenced by the syntax of Squirrel. I, I liked the syntax of Squirrel, and when we were doing Dolores, you know, we were copying a bunch of code over from Thimbleweed Park, and for the most part, we could just copy the Squirrel code over, and it would just run in Dinky. You know, it's just a, a minor modifications here and there for things, but it basically ran okay. And Squirrel, not the syntax, but the underlying architecture of Squirrel is really based on Lua. So there's a lot of you know, how, how Lua kind of manages things is really kind of under the hood in Squirrel. And when I did Dinky, I spent a lot of time looking at that and looking how Lua dealt with things like closures and whatnot. And and I, I took a lot of that and put it into Dinky. So Dinky is very much influenced by Squirrel. So how did you find to use it, David? Um, Yeah, I think the hardest part was just kind of remembering. I think it's been like three years since I coded Moe Park. So just kind of getting back up to speed, remembering it. Um, there, there was 
like you said, there was code that I was able to just copy over, but there often were one or two or three commands that had changed slightly. So I just had to find out what the, the new version of that was for it to work, assuming that you had it. Right, and everything is so amazingly documented. <laughs> that was probably really easy, right, David? Yeah, uh, yeah, so, right, David? Where, yeah. <laughs> so, Ron, where's, where's this command? <laughs> so, it's in the right. documentation. So, no, it's not. <laughs> All right, so then I have to go looking through source code to figure out what the damn command was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could do, I mean, I like you know the editor. I can just do a, a global search like in a fraction of a second to see if that command was used anywhere right, in yeah. the game. Um, yeah. But if I don't know what the command was to search for it, then it doesn't help. So Yeah, the joy of using in-house tools. Yeah, and then it changes during the process. But Okay, next question comes from Maxwell. He says, why was the electricity in the bathroom saved when almost everything else was reset? Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting question. Originally, I mean, this change came about, what, about a week before we shipped, right? Yes. It right. was very, very late. Um, originally it was not, but the bathroom is a fairly involved puzzle chain and, you know, you have to, you know, get, get the envelope, get the stamps, you have to trek back to Natalie and just all this stuff goes on there. And it really was just kind of becoming this grind. And I think it, it really started to impact the pacing because if you look at the pacing of Dolores, it's almost this you know, inverted exponential thing. You spend a lot more time on the first five photographs and every chunk of photographs you do, you spend less and less and less and less time. And towards the end of the game, you you have this really nice rhythm, you know, because you've experimented with stuff, you've seen a lot more, you've seen more of the world and you just you're just kind of running through things. But the problem was the bathroom puzzle because it's needed in almost all of the sets of photos. It just, it really wrecked the pacing of everything. And we just, we realized, you know, we need to do something about this. And the, you know, the the easiest thing to do is just save the bathroom state. You know, we knew whether you'd solve this puzzle, so we saved that. So it was just tedious, really. Yeah. And it was probably, came from the testers who had to play through the game like hundreds of times. They were the ones who remarked that way. Yeah. Yeah. The testers really brought this up as, you know, hey, this is an issue and I think it needs to be dealt with. And we looked at some other things that, that were like that and none of the other ones had the same quality of just being tedious. Yeah. I think the, the Lenora puzzle was the other one we right. looked at, but that one's so simple. You know, you just take a picture of the, of the sign and take it to Lenore and you're done. Where the bathroom puzzle is quite involved. And there's also a lot of walking, you know, to do that one. And it's fine. It's fine once, right? Doing that once is okay because there's the anticipation of will this work. But when you have to do it over and over and over again, it just becomes tedious. Right. So Nick wants to know what are your thoughts on off-the-shelf engines for adventure game programming, like the Adventure Creator for Unity or similar frameworks? Are they any good, and where do they fall down? Why is a custom engine the direction you chose? Well, you know the custom engine you know i hate to say i just like creating engines i enjoy creating programming languages and writing compilers so that's just fun for me you know if you look at something like say a sound engine right i, I really have no desire to program a sound engine so you know we just license def mod i'm sure if 
you know, I felt the same way about scripting languages and a lot of people do, you know, they're just going to go license something. So I think I enjoy it. And that's part of it. I do think it actually gives you a lot of power because you can really customize, you know, the engine and the language to do the things that might be tedious or cumbersome when you're programming. You can really get rid of those and kind of let the engine, you know, deal with the heavy lifting. You know, you, David, you've, you've used Adventure Creator, right? Yeah, I, I did a project with Gary um, last year, and we wanted to use Unity, and so I tried Adventure Creator and found it, you know, in a lot of ways it was really good, um, but I often was getting frustrated because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the way that I thought of coding, how, how you would, how you should be able to do it, and felt like I had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get something simpler to happen that I thought would, should have been easy. You know, the support was great. Um, the community is really good. Um, there are a whole bunch of extensions, and you could probably create any kind of UI that you want to with it and do both 2D and 3D. You know, I, I, I like having, well, I like having custom engine where I could hound the developer of a custom engine and say, <laughs> hey, I really need this command. <laughs> and, and that's great. So if I had a choice, I would choose what we're doing. And, and, and like you said, it gives us way more control. For the kind of game we want to do. Yeah, I don't think there's really any right answer to that, you know, because you know, the engine that you're using, it really depends on how well that engine fits what you want to do at the moment. I'm sure that things like Dinky work really well for David and I, but I'm sure other people would be horribly frustrated with them because they exactly the kind of game that they want to make. So I don't think there really is kind of an end-all solution for this stuff. You really have to look at you know, what kind of game you're making and you know, what are your requirements to figure out, you know, what engine or language or whatever works best for you. And Sergio wants to know what were the main reasons to create a new engine from scratch and how much could you salvage from the previous engine? Well, I think the impetus for creating the new engine was honestly boredom. You know, I think like a lot of people, I, you know, can't really go out and do stuff. So I'm really stuck at home and I was just kind of bored and I really started thinking about the Thimbleweed Park engine. And I think a lot of programmers who have shipped games can relate to this, but I think when you ship a game, you're kind of sick of your code. You know, you don't want to see it anymore. And there was a lot of Thimbleweed Park, that engine that I was very frustrated with towards the end of the game because we needed to get stuff in the game we needed to get stuff done and so i just i did a lot of things really quickly that were not kind of architected correctly you know the way that i really would want them to be and so being able to go back and pull out just the pieces of that engine that i liked and kind of move them into the new engine was really nice maybe even a little cathartic you know to be able to do that i would say the new engine probably shares probably 75 or 80 percent of the code that the Boyd Park engine did, but because I moved it over just piece by piece, right? I literally started with a blank project, and I just copied over the pieces I wanted, and I rewrote them as I copied them over. It just feels like it's much better and and cleaner code. So that that is the reason that I did that. So Francisco wants to know. When and how did you come up with a plot for the Dolores adventure? What gave you the idea? Um, you know, it started out, like I said before, 
that it was just a prototype and I was just I was just trying to test out systems you know I wanted to get the actors up and running a walk boxes and inventory and I was just putting this stuff together and the and the whole concept of you know Dolores and the camera you know we had the camera you know we had that image for the inventory and so it was you know pretty easy to throw it in the game and I kind of quickly understood started to understand that just going around taking pictures of the things is actually a really fun activity and you can kind of create these really interesting puzzles with it because they really are conceptual puzzles there isn't you know a lot of puzzle solving or locks and keys but it's just it's it's reading what Adel, what natalie wanted and then figuring out well what could i do that could kind of satisfy this and those just became uh, really fun puzzles. And so that's just how it really started. So Bo J wants to know, whose idea was it to reveal that the sheriff in the corner were unique characters? Brilliant arena puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. So you want to take this one, David? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, I, well, I remember going back to the original brainstorming sessions with Emily Park. And I what I remembered was at least in my mind, that they were the same individual and that Thimbleweed Park was, you know, falling apart, didn't have any budget for, for its staff. So they got one guy to, to do all these roles, you know, three roles. And, but he didn't want to let, let on. So he would always convince everyone, try to convince everyone that he was, he was a different person. And every once in a while he would have, make a mistake. But we never really knew because we never had an opportunity to try to get them in the same room. And in this one, we said, well, I, I don't remember whether, you know, I think we talked about something about that and, and we said, okay, let's actually have a puzzle where we could do that. We originally, we talked about maybe doing all three of them, having the hotel manager working at the, the unused desk downstairs in the city hall. And we just decided that would get too complicated. So I, I think it came out of the brainstorming. I don't know whose idea it was though. I had... I had I had wired up the sheriff's office in the game and I put the sheriff in there and I was just playing around with you know some of the UI code for opening and closing the drawers and I just thought it would be fun if the sheriff went around and closed all the drawers that you opened up and the radio um, at the time was actually not in the cell it was on the file cabinet like in the Boyd Park and you turn on the radio and the sheriff you know turns it off and I think that's really what started the ball rolling, you know, about well, what kind of a puzzle can we create out of this? Because this is, you know, this is kind of a fun thing to do. And then that just snowballed into the the coroner and, and putting them together. Right. So we had just had, a, I, had a, I moved the graphics of the radio and then added the key that was in the bank and put it up sheriff's office. Yeah. Originally, that key was there from the beginning. In the game, and, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, the few people that I did watch play it, they would, in their first playthrough, they get the sheriff locked in the jail cell just because it was a fun thing to do. And that was really kind of backwards, and the pacing didn't work, and so we decided, oh, let's let's just make the key appear at some point. And that's not always a good idea. I mean, I think that was a little bit of a cop-out on our parts. I think it's bad when objects magically appear in adventure games, you know, just for pacing reasons or puzzle reasons you know that that i wasn't happy with we originally we thought we'd do it with some dialogue but dialogue magically appearing is probably worse than an object magically appearing so if we had more time i i think we would have worked on that puzzle a little bit more 
least the key, you know, the key showing up. Yeah, to have dialogue magically appear for especially for a character that you've already talked to multiple times. Yeah. You probably wouldn't catch it. All right, next question is from B Jesus. Wants to know Dolores is my favorite Thumbweed Park character. What was your reasoning for selecting her as a protagonist for this prototype rather than the other Thumbweed Park characters? Were others considered? Um, you know, I think Dolores is definitely my favorite character. So when I started doing the prototypes and I just needed, you know, a character to walk around, I just naturally just kind of grabbed Dolores because I really, I really liked her as a character. He also asked, initially, was Dolores inspired by anyone? I don't, I mean, there's nobody in particular that she was inspired by. I, th- I think in some ways she's a little bit of, you know, any nerd, you know, there's a little bit of me in her. There's probably a little bit of David in her, For sure. and, you know, and I think that's where the, you know, working at, you know, mucus phlegm came mm-hmm. from. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember when I first got the job at Lucasfilm and how my reaction was, that was the inspiration for, you know, her reaction when she got her job. And, and so it just felt really good to, you know, put that in there. Did you do a dance? And I, I did actually. I wasn't as good as her. I just jumped up and down. <laughs> no moonwalking? No moonwalking, no. <laughs> um, I don't know if they had moonwalks yet <laughs> at that point. I might have been too early. I do remember jumping up and down and getting off the phone and realized I never asked what my salary was going to be. And, <laughs> and realized I didn't care. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, when I when I got the job at Lucasfilm, my salary was horribly low, for very much the same reason. I just, I wanted the job so bad, I just totally underbid my salary completely. Hmm. Making the big bucks now, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, zero the, for the, the last game. <laughs> the, the big, the big adventure game royalty. Bucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so Henry wants to know, uh, did you have to restrain yourselves from adding more and more to Dolores, or was it planned to be the size as it is now? Well, you know, when we started the project, I think you know both David and I knew that we didn't want it to be a long project. You know, when when David came on, you know, I talked to him about it being a four to six week project. So we kind of had two, that two week, two week. Did I say two weeks? <laughs> I think I told you Maniac Mansion would be done in a month, too. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> you keep falling for it. Um, yeah, so we, we knew it was going to be a small thing, and we had really time-boxed it in that sense. And and it was it was kind of nice. I mean, having constraints like that can actually be a really good thing. And I think because we had this time frame and we knew we had to get everything in, we were just looking for really clever solutions to problems because we knew we couldn't just run late on the whole thing. All right, Thomas Hardy, who is your favorite NPC in Thimbleweed Park and why? Oh, yeah, I'll answer. Um, I, I probably like, I, I think it's probably you know, characters that you voiced that you added the dialogue for. So for me, it was probably uh, Doug. Doug the land, you know, the, the guy who was digging and I just had never tried writing with an accent and just had a lot of fun trying to, to do that. And I actually ended up going to a, a website that was a translation from English to Scottish <laughs> and, <laughs> and tried to use some of the, the, the words, use that words. Yeah. yeah. So af- afterwards I said, oh, I got pretty close with some of that. Yeah. D- Doug is, Doug is a great character. Yeah. 
um, we actually remember in the original brainstorming, we were going to have them digging holes in the walls and in the floors throughout the house and actually create holes. And that kind of got pushed aside. Maybe Doug needs his own Thimbleweed Park mini adventure game. He might, yeah. Instead of taking photos, he goes around town digging holes. <laughs> For different reasons. All right, so Simon wants to know, I really like that the tasks and dolores change each time you start the game and finish showing photos. In future games, could you envision cycling through a set of puzzles in a similar way to enhance replay value? I mean, there's something nice about having these small little bite-sized nuggets of stuff that you have to do each time rather than the kind of daunting job that you have in a full-size adventure game. You know, that is kind of nice. I think you know, um, you know, games like um, Animal Crossing, you know, are really good at this, right? Because you you log in, you do a bunch of stuff, you quit playing. The next day, you show up, you do a bunch of little stuff. It's just kind of a nice cycle to to be in. I think if you know the photos were almost procedurally generated, right? So you really didn't know what five photos there were going to be every day. That that could be kind of fun. I mean, a lot of adventure games have done things where you take photos seems to be a, a, a very common thing to do. Well, I think that is the end of the questions. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a while since we did this. I think it was yeah. I think two years where we did our, our one-year anniversary for Thimbleweed Park, even longer when we actually had regular meetings. So so it's definitely fun. Um, we should do it more often. It's I mean, it's hard to put them together, right? Because you're looking at 100 or so you know, questions on the blog and then you have to sort through them all and you have to copy them all. And it's actually a lot of work to kind of gather up the questions. And then you edit. You're, do we realize, figure out that your your edit time is like a eight to one ratio? Like for every hour of recording, it's like eight hours of editing or something? I think I spent with Thimbleweed Park, we would do an hour long podcast and I'd probably spend like five hours okay. editing so the four, whole thing. Five to one. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is a lot of work to do these things, but they're fun. Yep. It's really fun to do these things. All right. Okay. All right. See you guys in the movie park somewhere. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. See you later. Bye. Good. They were longer. I think we spent like uh, 52 minutes on the, the previous one. Oh, it's the last time we were on for two hours. Not the one we did yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one was like 52 minutes or something. Wait, yesterday? Yeah. No, we we, we started at one and we were done by about, like, around three o'clock. Oh, the yeah. recording was only 52 minutes. That was probably after the, the mess up. Oh, that may be. Maybe that's why it's. Why is why it looks so short to me? Huh. I was actually surprised that we'd only gone. All right, so I'm gonna stop recording. Okay. But remember, wait for the buffering. Three, two, one.